Never mess with a Soviet! Welcome to The Internet Says It's True, a show where we learn something new every week, part of the WCBE podcast experience. My name is Michael Kent. I'm excited to have you back. Just a couple notes. I'll be taking the next few weeks away from the show, and I'll be back with more new episodes after that. And a few small changes to to start what I'm calling Season 4. The seasons of this podcast are mostly arbitrary and don't really mean anything, but for this one, there will be a few small format differences you might notice. In any case, I'll be playing some favorite episodes from the past for the next few weeks. Some of you may have never heard them before, so I hope you enjoy those. In the meantime, please keep sending in those topics. You can do that on the sidebar of the website, which is the internet says it's true.com. Also, be sure to join the Patreon if you want to be able to watch the videos of all the guests and hear the unedited versions of the quiz or listen to ad-free episodes or just to support me in this project. This week's story is one that I've had bookmarked for a long time and I don't even have record of who sent this to me. So thank you to whomever did that. It's a story about the Cold War and spycraft and I found it just super, super interesting. To talk about it, we first have to talk about a musical instrument. What you're listening to is called a theremin. It's a strange musical instrument. It's essentially a wooden box with large metal antennas sticking out of the top and the side. The box has knobs which alter the sound, but the instrument is played by holding your hands in proximity to the antennas without touching them. As you move your hands in the air, the pitch of the instrument changes. You've probably heard a theremin as a classic sci-fi sound. Even though sci-fi might be how you know the theremin, its use was far more widespread than that. It was invented by Leon Theremin in 1919. Leon Theremin was his American name. His real name was Lev Sergeyevich Theremin, and he created the device at the behest of the Soviet government, who was conducting research on proximity sensors. He patented the invention in 1929 in the U.S., but was kidnapped by the precursor to the KGB of the Soviet government and brought back to the Soviet Union in 1938. Although some accounts state that he left the U.S. to escape crippling debt. Whichever is true, his invention, the theremin, was not a huge success. It gained a cult following and is still treated as a novelty instrument. So what does this have to do with spy stuff? Well, you heard me mention the KGB, right? One of the precursors to the KGB was the NKVB, the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs. That's the group that supposedly kidnapped Theremin to bring him back to the Soviet Union in 1938. He was placed into a forced work camp, then transferred to a Sharashka, a secret lab within the Gulag. It was there that he was forced to use his electronic knowledge to create clandestine devices for the Soviet Union. Let's cut to 1945 and the Young Pioneers. Its full name was the Vladimir Lenin All-Union Pioneer Organization, and it was a mass youth group in the Soviet Union for kids ages 9 to 15. It was kind of like the Soviet Union's version of the Boy Scouts, but with way more involvement from the state. During a meeting with the United States Ambassador to Russia, Avril Harriman, the young pioneers presented him with a large wooden hand-carved wall plaque. It was of the Great Seal of the United States, an eagle with a shield holding olive branches in one claw and arrows in the other. It was presented under the premise of friendship and allyship after the close of World War II. Ambassador Harriman gladly accepted the gift and put it on the wall of his residential study. None of the Americans knew at the time. It was one of Theremin's devices, a secret listening bug. I'll tell you more in a minute. I've been traveling again lately, and that means I've been wearing my Scotty Vest jacket, which is awesome for anyone who sort of lives life on the go like I do. It's been awesome for traveling around because it's got tons of pockets for all my gadgets, my phone, my glasses, my wallet, my charging cord, you name it. It's a clothing company I believe in and I'm confident they've got an article of clothing that you'll love. The best thing you can do is take a look at all the awesome pocket-packed clothing on their website. To get 15% off your order, visit the link in the show notes. There was a time that humans used 100% organic products as healing balms and moisturizers for their skin. Well, I've partnered with an awesome company that wants to get back to those times. 
Fatco sells organic and responsibly made tallow-based skincare products. For centuries, humans used tallow in skin moisturizers and healing balms, but unfortunately, the topical application of these fats seemed to stop around the same time that animal fats stopped being considered part of a healthy diet. A lot of modern skincare products do more harm than good by stripping your skin of its natural oils. Let's change that. You can try them out now at fatco.com and get 15% off your order by using my promo code INTERNET. Go to theinternetsaysitstrue.com slash deals for the link. Let's get back to the story. One time back in 2018, President Trump accepted a gift from Vladimir Putin in Helsinki. Mr. President, I'll give this ball to you, and now the ball is in your court. All the more that the United States will host the World Cup in 2026. Thank you very much. We do host it, and we hope we do as good a job. That's very nice. That will go to my son, Baron. We have no question. In fact, Melania, here you go. (laughs) As the Russian president spoke, the ball is in your court, pun, He handed Trump a soccer ball from the World Cup, which Russia had recently hosted. Now, rumors swirled immediately that maybe the soccer ball was bugged. Even Senator Lindsey Graham expressed concern that there might be listening devices and said there's no way that it should be in the White House. Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats ensured that the ball had been checked very carefully. Well, it turned out the ball did have a microchip and transmitter inside but it was determined that it was just part of the standard Adidas AG smart soccer ball that can passively send and receive data for competition. Adidas came forward and said, no, this ball uh, was not created to listen to the Americans. And there was good reason for concern. Our story, which takes place 70 years prior, was exactly that same type of Trojan horse, a listening device in the form of a gift. It's not a dumb idea. Spy agencies have been using clandestine methods of spying since their inception. The CIA once had a transmitter made to look like dog poop. They used it to keep an eye on enemy troop movements and activity during the Korean War. In the 1970s, U.S. intelligence built a listening device into a tree stump and put it in a wooded area near Moscow, and that was used to pick up radar and radio communications from a nearby airbase. But predating those was The Thing. They called it The Thing because when they discovered it, they had no idea how it worked or what it did exactly. So let's go back to 1951. A radio operator for the British government was monitoring Russian Air Force radio traffic, and all of a sudden, here's the voice of the British Air Attaché, an advisor to the British ambassador to Russia. He didn't know where it was coming from, but there definitely shouldn't have been a British voice coming through the airways he was monitoring. So they did a thorough sweep of the British embassy, and they didn't find a thing. A few additional State Department employees were sent in to investigate. They checked out the British and the Canadian embassy buildings. They didn't find anything. But then they used a signal generator to conduct a counter-surveillance sweep in the American embassy. And it was a good time to do it too because George F. Kennan was just coming in for his tenure as the new ambassador to the Soviet Union. When they reached the Spasso House, the ambassador's residence at the American embassy compound, the signal generator produced loud feedback when it got near the wall behind the ambassador's personal desk. That's when their attention was brought to the Great Seal of the United States, carved in wood, hanging on the wall. They removed the seal, and the FBI started analyzing it, but there was no power to it, no external connections, so they had no idea how the thing worked. They enlisted help from the British Marconi Company, and scientist Peter Wright discovered that inside the seal, there was a 9-inch long monopole antenna and a cavity with a capacitor and extremely thin membrane. It essentially acted like a condenser microphone, and the way it worked was that the device had to receive a radio signal of the correct frequency, and it would sort of activate the device. Sound waves would pass through the wooden case and cause the thin membrane to vibrate and then retransmit the signal out of the building. It was an incredibly simple device using applied electronics. It was able to monitor any conversation within range, and had been doing so for nearly seven years. Now, we don't know for sure what all the Soviets heard during that time. Of course, they claim they obtained, quote, specific and very important information, which gave them certain advantages in the prediction and performance of world politics in the difficult period of the Cold War, end quote. But during that time, it was pretty much assumed already that both sides were always listening to each other. Guests to the American embassy were even handed cards upon entering that told them their conversations would likely be monitored anywhere on the compound. This was happening long before the Great Seal Bug was ever discovered. One of the interesting developments from the Great Seal Bug 
is that it inspired further spycraft. Britain's MI5 fashioned their satyr device, S-A-T-Y-R, on that technology that they got from the Great Sealbug, which was a pair of umbrellas with hidden electronics to transmit audio. But as far as the public was concerned, they didn't know the bug had been found. They sat on the discovery and they didn't let the world know until an international incident forced their hand. On display in Moscow, the wreckage of pilot Francis Powers' U-2 reconnaissance plane for Moscovites and foreign newsmen to see as the Soviet launches its most belligerent anti-American propaganda barrage in recent years. On May 1, 1960, an American U-2 spy plane was shot down by Soviet Air Defense Forces while conducting a secret recon mission inside Soviet airspace. The pilot, Gary Powers, was imprisoned and the American government covered the mission up, claiming Powers was piloting a NASA aircraft that just went off course. Khrushchev was able to expose the cover-up to the whole world because he had Powers alive and wreckage from the plane. A summit between America, the Soviet Union, France, and Britain was called, and they met in Helsinki just two weeks after the U-2 incident. It was short, and tensions between the Americans and the Soviets resulted in very little being done. On May 23rd of 1960, the Soviet Union was granted a four-day meeting of the United Nations Security Council. Their aim was to have the Council condemn the United States for spying. The Soviet Minister of Foreign Affairs railed against the Americans for their spying. When the U.S. Ambassador Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. had a chance to address the Council, his arguments didn't deny the U-2 spy plane incident, nor did he deny that the U.S. was spying on the Soviet Union. His argument was that both sides do it. And just in case that fact was denied by the Soviet Union, he brought with him a visual aid. It was a large, wooden, hand-carved great seal, the thing itself. He opened it and described to the Council how it worked. At the United Nations, the Security Council debate on Soviet charges of American aggression ends with a sharp final clash between Gromyko and Lodge. Ambassador Lodge counters repeated denials of Soviet spy activities with a concrete and dramatic example. He tells how the Soviet planted a listening device in America's Moscow embassy, concealed inside a wooden carving of the Great Seal, presented as a gift by the Russians. The next day, the United Nations Security Council held a vote. The Soviet's resolution to condemn the United States for spying was voted down 7 to 2. Well, now it's time for the part of the podcast where I call a friend, and today I'm calling Daniel Malone. Daniel is a musician from Savannah, Georgia, who is currently touring as his solo project, Danny Moon. Let's take a listen. You were a widow when I first saw you Leaning on a palm tree by the riverside You were in a sundress, it was on a Sunday We were in the sunshine by the sea You were reading Fyodor Dostoyevsky When you first met me by the you were in a sundress, it was on a Sunday, we were in the sunshine by the sea. Daniel Malone, it is so good to see you, man. Michael Kent, I think the last time we saw each other was on a golf course. It was, Dublin, I was just Dublin, about Ohio. to say that. I saw you, I, it was maybe last year or the year before we, we, we golfed together, um, which is always a spectacle to see me golf, because I golf literally once a year. That may have been like the last time I golfed. Also, in the space-time continuum-wise, it could have could have also been like five years ago. Yeah, like right, like it could have been the difference between 2019 and 2021 to me. I, I have no idea anything that happened in there. I can tell you a lot of stuff that happened in like March of 2020 because so much happened in the very beginning of the pandemic that it's like stamped in my mind. It's like time stamped. But then before and after, it's just a blur. I have no idea, man. So, yeah, time really got messed up. You're in but, Savannah, um, Georgia, and we just listened to a little bit from your song, and you might have to help me with the name of the song. It was... The Curious Meeting of Miss McGee, is the, the one in is, five? We just listened to The Curious Meeting of Ms. McGee, and mm. uh, it's, it's an interesting song because it starts kind of slow. It gets into this really cool, like, 5-4 Latin feeling rhythm. 
and um, it's a story song. How is that a true story? Tell me about this. Uh, well, it, it started off as a true story. I had a, a friend I, I dated shortly when I lived in New York City, and then we became really good friends after uh, we realized that dating wasn't really going to be our journey. Um, and I started writing the song about her, and then I didn't finish it for maybe five years. And by the time I finished it, her character had morphed into a ghost. So, and I also, I went on tour and I, I, I didn't really catch up with her as, as much as maybe I should have. Um, but she had known that I was writing a song about her and then she found it and, and she messaged me and she was like, you know, I'm not dead. Um, <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, maybe, are you sure? <laughs> Um, it's that's but yeah. I guess that's the peril of like writing a song about someone is that eventually they're probably going to hear it, and then you have to deal with that. Right, 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 right. Yeah, it's the same with like doing comedy about real things and real people in your life. You know, like I have a story in my show about my dad, and it's fictional, uh, but it was really awkward the first time he saw it. Uh, I bet <laughs> he loved it though. Like I was kind of surprised. Like he loved it. He he got the joke, and he. He just sat and laughed the whole time, which was which was awesome. Well, so, that's good. You also have to deal with the fact that, um, based on your story, they made like two fantastic movies about uh, Magic Mike, yeah. right? So that was based on on your story. I don't really have to deal with it much anymore. I've noticed when it came <laughs> out, that was because like people called me Magic Mike before those movies. That Long was all, before. Like I'm probably still in some college friends' phones as Magic Mike. And when those movies came out, life was difficult for me for a while. Like it was a, a lot of the same joke. Uh, and I hardly hear it anymore because thankfully those movies didn't become part of our culture uh, other than just the title, you know. Sure. Yeah. And I, but but do, I, you, do you still get royalties from that? I mean, is it based <laughs> on a is it, <laughs> is don't, it semi, semi-biographical? If only I had copyrighted that name. <laughs> I just never wanted to be called Magic Mike, even when people they, did call me that. Or the abs. Did you copyright the abs at least? The abs, dude. Yeah. I would have killed for those abs. It, you know how embarrassing it is to tell people that the best shape of my life was when I was in the marching band? That's like, for people who don't know, uh, first of all, I should, I should preface this with Daniel and I know each other because we were in the Ohio State Marching Band together back like 20 years ago. We both played the snare drum. And um, I, when I tell people like the best shape I was in of my life was when I was in the marching band. They don't understand that unless they're from like Columbus or the central Ohio area and kind of know the, the legacy of the Ohio State marching band, which which is a big deal around here. But outside of that, it's just marching. People, people imagine high school marching band. Right. And as you're saying that, I, there, was a, there was a pompous part of my brain that was like, man, it sucks for you that the best shape of your life was in the Ohio State marching band. Then I was thinking, I was, yeah, me too. Yeah, dude, I had a, <laughs> I had a six pack. Yeah, I had like, yeah. I had guns. Those, mm -hmm. my, my calves were awesome. I had a little shelf, you know, on my calves. And, uh, and while we're talking about the band, I should take this opportunity to apologize. I have a little bit of a, of a story, a mea culpa story for you. Uh, so you were a first year uh, band member, a rookie, when I was in my fifth year. I was, I was in charge of picking the people, helping to pick the people who would be in the drum row. And you made the band fairly easily. Like you were, you were on top of it and you were good. And you hung out with us a lot, which is rare for first year members. They don't socialize with like the fifth years outside of band practice that often. Some of them do. But you kind of but wait a minute. Have that. you have you met 18 year olds, though? Like they <laughs> suck. They're just <laughs> awful, awful people. 23 year olds way more up my. Yeah, more. So it's, <laughs> no, it's true. It's a you know, it's a growing time college. But right. uh, so what I'm what I have to apologize for is there was a time earlier in that season when I was chatting with some guys who had been in the band like 20, 30 years before me back in like the 80s, 90s. And they were like, man, the worst thing we ever did to rookies was something called the emotional roller coaster. And I'm hooked, right? Like I'm a 23 year old guy getting ready to be like the squad leader. I'm like, what's the emotional roller coaster? He said, what you do is you take like the the rookie that is like, you know, friends with everybody and really friendly and who doesn't, you know, who's good, like your your best performing rookie. And you go on a trip on like one of the band trips and you just ignore them for the for the whole trip. <laughs> And I, as soon as they said emotional roller coaster and explained what it was, I was like, Dan Malone, we're doing this to Dan Malone uh, because you would come to parties with us and stuff. So 
We went to. No, wait, not only would I come, to, I would get invited to party. <laughs> you wouldn't just show up like hey, I wouldn't. Just, I wouldn't. Yeah, no. I, I, there was some. There are some stories that I won't tell on this family friendly podcast um, <laughs> involving you and some other people. But um, it was a crazy but yeah. time, man. I really appreciate you inviting me to those parties too, because I immediately had a whole group of friends, and I was an eighteen-year-old that didn't know anything. So I really appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, and and like so, we took you on this, we, or we went on this band trip to Chicago, Illinois, Northwestern University. We're playing, and we just decided. And I had told like the other squad leaders, like we're just gonna not talk to Dan on this trip as a joke, and uh, not thinking like that probably sucked. Uh, what a mean thing to do. Like even during I, I remember during uniform inspection, when you go down the line and you inspect each person's uniform, uh, I just skipped you. And I, <laughs> and I I think I remember you going like, hey, you didn't. And I was just like, you're, you're fine, whatever. And just kept going. Um, it's just a horrible thing to do to a person. It's it's probably very technically we're probably very obviously hazing. Um, but I'm taking this opportunity on my podcast to say, I'm sorry, Daniel. It's uh, it was a horrible thing to do. Well, uh, I, I appreciate the apology. Um, I can say, I think with pretty much with 100% certainty that I, I didn't really feel um, particularly upset by that. I think also, uh, in retrospect, there were some really nurturing older members in the in the marching band, like the Kristen Nelsons of the of the world. And I think either her or Brooke uh, Shrek Trickle. Yeah. I think one of them actually kind of came up to me and was like, Hey, this is what they're doing. Like, don't, don't let it phase you. Like, yeah. Okay. Good for them. So, yeah. I think, I think somebody took me under their wing and made sure I was, I didn't <laughs> feel emotionally hurt by that. But well, uh, I, I will say though, cause that, I mean, that's a close call because when I was in fourth grade, I like the only abandonment issue I've ever had in my life came from my, my best friends in fourth grade who decided for like a month and a half not to talk to me. And I, I, and I've talked about it to my therapist the other day. It's, uh, it's interesting what, what we kind of, what gets kind of stamped in our memory sometimes, but that didn't get stamped in my memory. And if it did, it was, it was with, uh, with love kind of thing. So yeah, a lot yeah. Of the I, stuff, I do appreciate the apology though. Of course. A lot of the stuff we used to do back then was with love, uh, and looking at it from the outside or with a 20 year retrospective, it's kind of like, man, that that was pretty rough, but I don't remember it being that way, you know, and that's kind of why that's really kind of why hazing is a problem in colleges in general, like in, in fraternities and stuff is because when you're in it, you don't see the problem because you're so close to it and it feels like a family. Um, but if someone didn't want to do something in the band that we told him to do, it was usually pretty cool. It was usually fine. Like, okay, fine. But then again, you don't know those times when someone didn't speak up because they wanted to fit in, you know, and, and right, uh, that gets right. into a whole other other deal. But we've stayed friends. We've 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 stayed in touch and you're on the podcast now. And so it's time to get into this week's topic, which is um, something that you don't know about. You you don't know what this is. Question number one, we're playing for a joke. So if you get it right, I have to tell you a joke. And if you get it wrong, you have to tell me a joke. Cool. Got it. Yep. OK. During the early days of the Cold War, a group of Soviet schoolchildren gave a gift to the American ambassador to the Soviet Union that ended up being a problem. Which one of these gifts was it? Was it A, a plaque that was found to be a secret listening device, B, a pair of gloves that were laced with secret poison oil, or C, a set of Russian dolls that made fun of American leaders? Um, obviously, it wasn't the gloves, although... What if it was, and there were like three dead children, but they're like, you know what? It's still a good gift. <laughs> Why it's do you say obviously gift. though? Well, because uh, if a child was, uh, if the child gave the gloves to the ambassador, uh, okay, then the child would then be, you know, sure. placed with the poison and, you know, probably wouldn't make it that far. Um, I'm, <sighs> it's probably the plaque. It's probably the plaque, but, um, I kind of want to tell you a joke, so I'm going to go with the gloves. The gloves, but you so <laughs> so you're going with the gloves because you want to tell a joke. Yeah, but because I, I think yeah. I know it's the plaque, but I wanted I want to tell a joke. I'm gonna I'm gonna this is a weird one, but I'm gonna give you half a point for this because you did get it right. It is the plaque, but I'm still only giving you half because I want you to tell me a joke. So we'll give it. A, right. We'll give it. Normally we do a, a bell uh, for a win and a sad trombone. We'll give you both. Here they are. Here's the bell. 
Here's the sad trombone. Okay, there we go. Uh, tell me a joke, Dan Malone. All right, here we go. So, guy walks. An Irishman walks into a pub, and he, and the bartender says, "What can I get you?" And he said, uh, "I'll have three Guinnesses." And uh, bartender puts them down in front of him. He takes a sip in the left one, middle one, right one, over and over and over until they're all gone. And uh, the bartender comes back. He's like, "You want anything else?" He's like, "Yeah, three more." He's like, "You know, I'll I'll keep an eye on you if you just want to get them one at a time. If you want to drink them while they're cold." Uh, and he said, "I appreciate that, but I have two brothers. One's in Australia, and one's in Los Angeles, and." We made a we made a pact that every Sunday we were going to get together and, and drink together, even if it's just kind of in spirit. So this is how we drink and it's our thing. So Bartos like great, you know, fine. A uh, couple months go by every Sunday type thing, and then um, and then one day the the fellow comes in and and he says I'll have two Guinnesses, and the bartender kind of gets a sad look in his eye and he's putting two and two together and he's like you know, I know your ritual. And I just want to say, I'm really sorry that you lost one of your brothers. I know how hard that can be. Uh, and the guy goes, oh, no, my brothers are fine. I just quit drinking. <laughs> That's a really good joke. That's a fantastic joke. Uh, <laughs> and I, you know what? For that being such a good joke, I will award the other half of that point. So yes. there you go right. <laughs> with the other half. Uh, that's really good. Now, uh, I was listening to a lot of Danny Moon, the, and, and I actually listened to a lot of Less Rackets before that, which was your your previous project with, uh, it was like a trio, kind of, what would you say? It's like a poppy, poppy trio. I don't even uh, know. Yeah. It's jangly. To, it was fun. We, we disbanded in 2015, but we used to say that we were jazz musicians with rock and roll instruments playing folk music. That makes a lot so, of sense. Yeah. It's kind of like sensibilities of improvisation and kind of um, multi-genre approach. And then uh, our songwriter, Patrick Carroll, was a great songwriter, wrote fantastic hooks. And and that was a, yeah, that was a really fun time in my life. A lot of adventures. In fact, it's also a time in my life where you and I overlapped on the road a few times. Yeah, we, yeah, that's right. We were, I was probably back when I was touring more, a little more heavy than I am now. And uh, that's always like such a cool thing when a friend of yours is touring, having nothing to do with what you're doing, and you're both touring so much that it's going to happen. It's inevitable that you will see each other at an airport or in a city. I think we had a drink in Boston. Uh, I was there doing, I remember I I was performing at Northeastern University, but it was like this cool basement show. It was like a little I think cafe. I, I think I might have gone to it. Yeah, I think I went to your thinking. show and I think I surprised you. Yes, I do. I do remember seeing you as a surprise in the audience uh, at that show. That what a cool thing, man! And then we like, and you were staying really close to your hotel. I remember we yeah. like dropped your gig bag off in your in your hotel, and then we went out, and it was a lot of fun. So it was great. so cool. Uh, you know what you don't know is that night I had my first panic attack. Really? Uh, yeah, and then I suffered from anxiety, like general anxiety disorder for years after that but that was the first one because i had a show the next day in new hampshire uh which was only it was it was like an hour drive from where from downtown boston and i showed up at that show still on my panic attack because i didn't know what it was and i thought i was having a heart attack and well i'm really i'm really show. sorry then for for showing up after the fault. show and telling you that i got word that your parents died it's <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> so. like that really launched me into a whole thing man I, I shouldn't have done that yeah that was a bad joke no it's i i i'm happy to say that i uh have got it under control through a lot of different things including medicine and meditation which are both great things to do and therapy but uh in any case uh, I always hope that I run into friends on the road. And so if you ever see me performing in your city and you show up and you just are in the audience, that's like the coolest thing you can do. So yeah, until you learn that that was the catalyst for like a decade of, of uh, panic <laughs> attacks and panic then you attacks. start to question everything else. Um, <laughs> no, I agree. I agree entirely. I was on the road for, for, uh, around five years with less racket and anytime a friend would show up, it was just kind of that added little, like familial yeah you know just a little bit of home where you're like hey you know like another part of my life on this crazy adventure that is so full of ups and downs and that's probably you know i had a lot of anxiety from being on the road as well i have to admit um yeah i mean it's a combination of like uncertainty and lack of sleep and it's just that lifestyle is just prone to to give you anxiety i think definitely i agree i was 
I, I like I would I would just stay up too late, you know, back then. Like I would and, and then I would have 6 a.m. flights because I would like to get to the city early. And so it was just day after day after day of that. And there was times I was on the road for like more than 200 days a year. And uh, I don't I don't do that now. I'm not on the road as much now. But as uh, when I was like 30, it was a lot easier than it is. You know, now I'm 43 and there's like a big difference there. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I've, I've yeah, gained definitely. weight. I've gained a little some like more gray hairs and wrinkles. And uh, it's just not quite as easy as it used to be. I still love touring, though. I, and and uh, I think there's a lot more touring left in me. Uh, so, well, we do everything like that smarter now. You know, yeah. At least I, I, I know exactly where I'm going to sleep if I'm out of town. You know, sure. whereas before, and that was different for me because I was in a trio. Trio, we had a a minivan. It wasn't yeah. no flights unless you're flying away from the tour to go home and then fly back to the tour. Yeah. But it was being responsible for two other people and driving multiple hours a day and booking shows at coffee shops and meeting with for the sound check and talking with the radio station and this and that. And uh, it was so, it's such an adventure back then flying by the seat of your pants thing. And now I'm like, okay, if I'm doing this thing three months in advance, I'm going to know exactly who I'm going to talk to, where I'm going to stay, what time the thing is, what I need to bring, what I'm going to wear, what's yeah. going to be in the green room, et cetera. It's like, I need all that stuff planned out now. What's yeah. up? That's and, okay. And having done it so much, if you told me I had like a college to perform at tomorrow, it's no big deal. Like I, it's, you know, I'm packed. <laughs> I don't unpack, you know, I have a bag that's specifically for all that stuff. And then it just, I just go and I don't have to think about it. So, and technology has made it easier too, because apps like TripIt and stuff, um, you know, where I can organize all my flights and my rental cars and my hotels all in one spot. You know, it used to be an entire folder full of like MapQuest directions and, and, you know, it was, it was a lot harder when I first started than it is now. So uh, Shout out way. to TripIt, Trip proud it. sponsor of the <laughs> internet says it's true. <laughs> Don't I wish. Uh, by the way, if you're listening, I really do love your app and I would appreciate a free subscription. Uh, so anyway, let's keep moving. You're, uh, you're 0 for 1, but then I, it's a, it was a, awarded after the fact, so you're 1 for 1. And you're also like there's a half a point missing because you purposely got the We'll just give you the full point. Question two. For for this question, we're playing for an admission of something we do well. So instead of an admission of guilt, it's an admission of something we do well. And if you get it wrong, you've got to tell us something you're good at. If you get it right, I'll tell you something that I am good at. The Guinness Book of World Records says that the world's largest microphone is the Koros Supermic. And that microphone is 16 and a half feet tall by 10 feet wide. It was made mostly as a novelty, but the microphone actually did function and work as a mic. The world's smallest microphone, on the other hand, is only half a millimeter square, 0.5 by 0.5 millimeters, and it's used for which one of these purposes? Is it A, in a pair of CIA handcuffs, excuse me, is it A, in a pair of CIA cufflinks, B, is it being glued to cockroaches so scientists can hear them as they go throughout their day, or C, used inside of tiny imperceptible hearing aids? Okay, so when I got my CIA-issued um, <laughs> uniform, it did not have cufflinks in it. They were che- they were very cheap about it. Um, you know, you could be CIA, and it would be a great cover. Um, being a musician and touring, <laughs> like that's like a great cover for a uh, for a CIA operative. Operative. Yeah, I agree. Also, I don't think that I think that the government is technologically less advanced than we give them credit for. A lot of times, I think movies have done wonders to the perception of our intelligence agencies. Um, If I'm wrong, strike me down, CIA. See? Um, Cockroaches. Doesn't make any sense. If anything, it would be video cameras, because why does... It doesn't... You wouldn't want to listen to where they go during during the day. It's just going to sound like pitter-patter. It's got to be hearing aids. Hearing aids. C. C. You are correct. It is the hearing aids, the imperceptible tiny hearing aids. Uh, when I wrote these other ones, I was thinking like maybe, I don't know, maybe cockroaches have like a language that, uh, that <laughs> yeah. they have. I, don't know. I mean, I did see, you ever see Joe's apartment? Uh, oh my gosh, I forgot about Joe's apartment. That's right. So That's it could how, be one of those situations. Of it, yeah. So like, you know, you were talking about how the government's probably not as technologically advanced as we think. I think that's probably true, but it's, 
that's changed in our lifetime, right? Because, well, maybe maybe not in our lifetime, but just before our lifetime, like airplanes that are in the air now, like our fighter, fighters were way ahead of their time when they were designed in like the 60s and 70s. You know, like that was, they were hiding stuff from us, the technology that they had that, had, that no one knew existed. And now, if, they, if there is technology that we don't know exists, I can't see it being any more amazing than stuff that we have now, like what SpaceX is doing and what, you know, what you can find on the internet. That's a great point. Um, when I think of it, I think more about like little Charlie Thompson, who's 13 years old and he's like a better hacker than the, than the people <laughs> they have like working. You know what I mean? Like That's I think true. of it that way. I think of it from that, from that angle of like the people that are most talented at the new technologies are, are probably not hired by the CIA. They're sure. probably the CIA people are like tenured you know, like the, the 55 year old people are trying to like learn how to hack because they want to keep their jobs. And yeah. yeah. Well, by the way, Charlie Thompson, if you're listening, uh, I will send me your mailing address. I'll send you a free sticker. Uh, and that takes us to question. <laughs> oh, you know what? You got that one right. So I have to tell you something I'm yeah. good uh, that I do well. Yeah, please. I, I want to hear this. I always it, it, forget. Can I, can I, can I make one. a request that yeah. it's not magic or comedy? <laughs> no, can you because, do, can, something I don't know about you. Yeah. So here's the thing. When I added this stakes for this question. Uh, that was the purpose is that um, it's because I'm not good at talking about things that I do well, other than like work related stuff like drumming and magic. Sure. Whatever. Like even like podcasting. Um, I enjoy it. I can say that I do it well. It doesn't make me uncomfortable. I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm feel comfortable bragging about it, but like personal qualities. Um, yeah, I, this is what I, I want to hear with. Um, and one thing that I will say is I am good. Once I'm talking to someone, sometimes I'm a little bit shy about starting a conversation, but once I'm talking to someone, I'm really good at conversation with like a stranger. Um, and and I'm, I'm able to continue a flow of conversation. It's not awkward um, because I can pick up on the social cues or whatever there. But um, it, it only... It's only like that after I get into the conversation. I was never good at just, unless I'm doing magic, I'm never good at just approaching a stranger to talk to them. It's always been difficult for me. That's really funny that you say that because the first, you know, uh, six to seven months that I knew you, I guess our whole interaction was somewhat of magic. It was like you're, you were you were like performing in a certain way because you were a, a leader in, yeah. in our organization. And so I guess I, cause I always thought about you as someone who was able to, you know, for lack of a better terms, be a chameleon in conversation, like whether it's a, a, a an astronaut or like a third grade teacher or, you know, like a guru of some kind, like I, I would, I would bet money on you being able to strike up a conversation with that person and carry it along. So to hear you say that is interesting. Yeah. Cause I've I, never really, I think to carry it along, I, I can do to strike it's, and even striking up the conversation, it's the approach. It's the deciding to go and talk to a person. It happened today. Uh, today I was, I'm part of our city's um, public arts commission, right? So mm -hmm. we had a, uh, we were dedicating a mural that was painted and there were people there that I wanted to talk to from the city that I knew that I wanted to like meet mm -hmm. and just couldn't bring myself to, I just decided that I was going to be the guy that was just there quiet sitting in the background and not talking to them. Um, because I just have trouble with, I, it's like some sort of anxiety, social anxiety that I get about the approach to talk to a person. But once I do, it's always, like you said, I, I do feel very much like a, like a social chameleon. I can just sort of assimilate to, the conversation that's that's appropriate and and make it work but uh well let me ask you this if if i was at that meeting with you and say you wanted to meet the mayor um and i was sitting next to you and I, maybe i could tell that you wanted to meet the mayor maybe you say something like that if i said go do what i dare you would you have a, a better chance of going to do it Less. or a worse chance worse yeah worse okay but but i I have in the past and would see me myself saying something like, Hey, would you, would you introduce me to that person? Okay. You know, have like a little yeah. in, you know, when I was, when I was a single guy in college, uh, my buddy, my, my best friend, Mark was really good at talking to strangers, like just going up to someone and say, Hey, what's going on? And so he and I like 
we would do like we we would we would have a great time at the bars and like you know in talking to women he would be the approach guy and then i would be able to continue the conversation it was a really good wingman type of thing when we were you know young single dudes that's like a goose maverick type situation was, you like you show much. up with a joke and a magic trick and oh, he's dude. already got their attention yeah, dude that's, absolutely that's closer we did mentality. it was a whole thing so like <laughs> i i had this trick that i would always do where you would be able to name a card any card in the deck and i'd pull out my wallet and i would have that card in my wallet okay and not 52 cards in the wallet just the single card would pull out and say like here it is uh and and so mark would go up and say hey that's my buddy over there Go up to him and name a playing card, and I bet you he has that card in his wallet. And so, like, he would set up the magic trick, right? So mm. then cut to I'm, like, 23 years old, 24 years old, and I meet my wife. And on our first date, I tried to show her magic because that's what I knew how to do. And she goes, she looks at me like she goes, I know what you're doing, and it's not going to work on me. Wow. Like, she she has never been into that whole fake, like, magic persona thing she wanted to know me and that was super attractive to me uh, and still is like she still that like she calls me out on my bs so um we've gotten way off topic here let's get back to the cold war uh, oh yeah yes that's way more interesting <laughs> way is, more fun to talk about but that's why i have people on like guests on who can carry a conversation because uh this stuff's boring if it's just the topic for the whole 40 minutes so i i enjoy having you know having guests on who have done things so let's move on you are uh you're one for two and question three no you're two for two you're actually two for two for question three we're playing for a coveted the internet says it's true sticker uh and you can join charlie thompson in uh westbrook illinois who is a hacker in his mom's basement I don't know if that's a if that's true. And he since you since I said his name the first time, he's already hacked into your online store and he's ordered himself stickers. They're being sent to his place right now. He's the one typing my script to keep putting him in the episode. It's a very oh, meta okay. situation happening here. Wow. I like it. <laughs> Here's your question. Which one of these things did the US actually consider doing during the Cold War? So one of these things we actually considered doing as a country, but uh, uh here it is. A they considered a plan to hire a Khrushchev lookalike to film him doing embarrassing stuff like doing laundry and walking around in a bathing suit. B, they considered dropping monkeys infected with viruses onto Moscow. C, they considered airdropping oversized condoms marked medium over the Soviet Union in an effort to demoralize them. Okay, well, first of all, there is nothing more embarrassing than doing laundry in a swimsuit. <laughs> um, no, it's definitely not that one because neither of those things are embarrassing. Uh, even if you're like, even if you're just doing laundry, you've, you've gone through every single item of clothing that you own and the only thing you have is a swimsuit, you're still doing laundry and everybody needs to do laundry. So it's not that one. Uh, monkeys being dropped on Moscow. I like to imagine them being dropped from like, you know, a, the chest of a magician walking down the street, <laughs> not the, not an airplane because that seems very inhumane. Um, and also the condoms idea uh, seems brilliant. Genius. I don't know why they wouldn't have put small though. Why medium? <laughs> it's like, well, we need to make it believable. This is an American medium. It's like when you get a, when you get like an item of clothing from like a, a, a Chinese store or oh, something, God, it's yes. like, well, this is the size in China. It's, right. it's an extra large. And in America, you're a, you're a medium. That always makes me feel fat. Um, but yeah, it's got to be the condom one. It has to be. Also, I really want this sticker. So even if it's not the condom one, we just... Like, I can mail you a sticker, but you get one anyway because it is, in fact, the condoms. They considered airdropping nice. giant-sized condoms that they had marked medium over the Soviet Union in an effort to demoralize them and emasculate the, the soldiers. It was an early example of psychological warfare from Frank Wisner's Office of Policy Coordination and sadly, that plan was never carried out. They never did it, but it was a cool idea from the, the um, psops. Did they? I wonder how far along in testing they got. <laughs> yeah, did they? Did, make did they go to like random campuses? They go to like Ohio State and like free condoms, and then they watch. You know, they watch people. They first like, had. I mean, that plan would have would have made them have to go to like Trojan and say, "What's a normal size for a condom? Can we bump that? How much should we bump it up? Forty percent? Fifty percent?" 
how much would make it obvious that this doesn't doesn't fit someone? You know, how how big do we have to make it that it's too big? And then you're right. I think the medium is maybe that's to sell it. Uh, I think they write yeah. small on there. Now it's someone playing a joke, you know, because no right. one's oh, going like, to buy it. Yeah, like popcorn. they do at movie theaters, right? Like where the where the medium popcorn is like a dollar less than the large or something, but the small, you know, like yeah. they kind of and you pour like, the if you're small, going this far, you got to go this far. You pour, you pour the small into the large, and it's the amount same amount of popcorn anyway, right? It's always yeah. always the same. Let's. Uh, that was really good. Now uh, you got a sticker. You've got the admission of what I did well. You told me an awesome joke. Question four, you have to tell me about one of your favorite musical artists that you're currently listening to. So if you get it wrong, you'll hit me with one of your your current favorite acts. If you get it right, I'll tell you one of mine. Here is the question. Who coined the term Cold War? Was it A, Harry Truman, who first used it in his Truman Doctrine papers, B, George Orwell, who first used the term in the book Animal Farm, or C, Theodore Geisel, Dr. Seuss, who used it to rhyme with mold war. Hmm. So I'm, I'm saying not Dr. Seuss because children's books, you know, he, he had, I remember like the Sneetches story. There was, there was a little bit of division. It was kind of about like, you know, getting over our differences, but, and then, and then like the Lorax is about you know, climate and, kind of taking care of our, our community, our environment. I don't think that he would have written anything for children, at least, um, about war. So I'm going to say he's out. That's out. Um, George Orwell, Animal Farm. I read that book recently, and I think there was mention of the Cold War, but I don't know if that book was written before harry truman and i would imagine that it's a better chance of george orwell kind of taking it from harry truman um than creating it himself i might be wrong but i'm gonna go with harry truman the answer is george orwell who first used the term in the book animal farm so uh animal farm was a book meant to make fun of stalinism i think i read it in school but that was, you know, I, I don't care about world politics when I'm whatever, 13 years old, having being made to read that book. So I really think I should pick that up again. You said you read it recently. The, the second time I read it in school, too. Um, so but more I, enjoyable was, as an adult then? Sorry, more enjoyable. Um, No, no, I definitely <laughs> <laughs> it was it was a very quick read. I was in the back of a car. It was randomly in the back of the seat. I picked it up and read it. Um, It was fine. But you made you made an interesting point. You said you didn't really care about world politics back then but i would i would say that you know there's there's polit there's community politics there's interpersonal politics microeconomics i mean think about the sure. the ohio state marching band or, or any organization you've been in even in your high school popularity um who controls what you know people that win homecoming queen prom queen etc so that book probably still carries weight because there's definitely a communistic attributes of any organization as sure. well as uh you know democratic values everybody gets a say you know or uh socialism um it's it's all throughout a lot of different you know organizations so yeah but I would want to know what your opinion is if you read it again. I, I we should yeah, talk I, about it next time. I think I I think I might pick that up. I also have wanted been wanting to read 1984 again because both of those books I read when I was too young to appreciate them. Um but it's funny you talk about you know like the marching band being like that because I that's what I did my thesis on in college uh was the way that communication works in a um in a, a chain of command style organization versus mm. more of a modern style organization, you know, where like, you know, these companies where you might have six bosses and they all have open door policies that you can just walk in and then you can go get a beer afterward versus the way it used to be where you don't talk to the boss's boss. You only talk to the boss and then he talks to the boss's boss, which is the way that it was supposed to work when we were in the band. And I, I did a, I did a whole thesis about like how that affects communication and how, which one is more, um, efficient versus progressive and those types of things. It was 
That was so me. obviously, you know, you're dealing with real life telephone at that point too. And sure. also there's so much subjectivity involved. If I say something to you and you're my, and you're my squad leader, but I get, and I say it to you in a tone, you get to choose how to portray <laughs> what I say. And, and you pretty much tell the person above you how to think about it right. and how you deliver my message. Yeah. And that can work both ways because like, you know, I can also soften a message if I want, like if I'm in an organization and I'm someone's manager and they do something that wasn't right and I'm their manager and I have to report that up, I can soften that and say, well, something setting wasn't right. And the victim of that was this person that works for me. And you know what I mean? Like you can, you, it can work both yeah. ways sort of. So man, you're Malleable. killing it. You're, you're, you're two for three at this point. No, you're three for four. Uh, and, and you've only got one more question, but before we do that, you got that wrong. And so I need you to tell me about one of your favorite musical artists that you're listening to. Okay. Um, so I don't listen to a lot of music because I, I do it so much. And I know mm -hmm. that's a silly thing to say. I listen to a lot of NPR. I listen to a lot of kind of local jazz stuff when I'm driving home from gigs, but there have been some artists that have been kind of put in front of me in the last six months to a year that I think are of note. Uh, especially as a, I'm, I'm a pianist now as well. I, it's something I have undertaken like in the last five years and I write music on the piano and I really enjoy it. It's fun learning a new instrument, having that, you know, not being good at something thing again. Um, so somebody that's really been inspiring me lately is this, uh, English artist named Jamie Cullum. Yeah. Uh, my so wife listens to him. I'm not familiar with any of his music, but I know my wife like digs him because she's really into so, that type of thing. So something that's really cool about him is he's definitely a jazz musician, but he's a rock star. Yeah. Like if you watch him perform, he's got that attitude and he runs and he jumps and he, like he's got that kind of pizzazz of a really high energy performer. But then he's playing these like just nasty jazz solos on piano and, and his band's killing and... And um, yeah, it's just really great. Um, and I think one of the most creative musicians in the world right now, at least talent wise, is uh, a young guy named uh, Jacob Collier, who Jacob. I think is probably in his mid 20s now, but kind of came me on about the scene. Him, but I don't I'm not familiar with with Jacob Collier. And now is this like a is he like a TikTok sensation? He, I don't know. Or is it predate uh, that? Is it more like, you know, like YouTube? Yeah, you too. I think you too. I yeah. think, I think when he was 18, 19, still living at his parents' house in, in London, he kind of started videoing himself playing all these different instruments and uh, chopping them together and creating incredible, like, you know, 35 part harmonies using like a vocoder and he can play any instrument you put in front of him. He's just natural talent, understands harmony and music theory uh, better than anyone that I've ever seen or heard of. Um, there's a, a YouTube video of him explaining um, music theory to a kindergartner and then like a third grader, a middle schooler, high schooler, um, like a doctoral candidate, and then Herbie Hancock. <laughs> and then, and, and the way that he describes it is, is, is perfectly articulate and appropriate for each, for mm. each person, including right. Herbie Hancock, who's, who's blown away. Herbie Hancock's, you know, he was in the Miles Davis area. He's, he's played with the, the best musicians on the planet. And Jacob Collier is explaining to him <laughs> these like negative harmony theories and like all this stuff that, and he's like 19 when he's doing this that's too. Sick. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that's probably the two that I'd say. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you're doing well. Uh, question five is for all the marbles. And if you get this wrong, I'm banning you from the show. You will never be asked on again. This is all everything wrapped into one question. Okay. Where is the most enjoyable place you've visited? Visited. Not necessarily toured even, just visited. Right. Okay. So my kind of knee-jerk reaction is a moment in time in um, New York City, uh, Phantom of the Opera, um, very special person with me, just a, just a moment in time that, that kind of, goes over in my in my head um but i'm going to say right up there probably maybe a little bit more majestic would be i found myself 
in the Swiss Alps. Uh, I was on a tour. I wasn't even supposed to be hiking, but I was on a, a tour with a band from Montreal. Ironically, the band was called Old Savannah, which is where I live. Um, yeah. And they do not. And I got hired to fly up to Montreal for some rehearsals. And then we flew into Paris and had a 45 day European tour. And one of the days we were in this tiny little town. Um, I want to say it was called like Le Plan Sorbet or something like that. And, in Switzerland and the hostel that in which we were staying was butt up right onto a trailhead that led up into the Alps. And we had a free day. The rest of the guys in the group, I don't know if I woke up late or I don't remember exactly how, but they were gone. They were walking through the town and I just decided to walk up the trail because I knew or I thought, I hoped that when you start going up a trail, that eventually there's a payoff of like a big open area where you can enjoy a majestic view type of thing. And I'm in the, I'm in Switzerland. I'm in the Alps. I'm alone. I'm no expectations. I'm, I'm on work. Essentially I'm playing music. So, um, you know, and I have my, my musician clothes on, you know, probably something similar to what I'm wearing now. I definitely don't have a, a backpack in Timberlands or anything. I have like relatively stylish clothes and I'm like, you know, going up this treacherous Alps terrain and kind of believing that, you know, if I go far enough that eventually I'll, I'll get to a clearing. And I did, uh, took three or four hours to get there, but, um, it was definitely a great payoff and just overlooking, you know, it was a beautiful, um, blue sky, clear day I could see forever. And I was reflecting on my future and my past and everything. So that's probably, that's probably, I think that's That's, probably the right answer. That's amazing. You are correct. That is the right answer. And (laughs) uh, you performed well today. Um, And I I want everyone to go and check out Dan's music. Uh, You can do that in several places. You can look for Danny Moon, which is his solo project. Really great stuff. Also, look up Lulu the Giant. Uh, That's another stuff. I just started listening to some of that today, which is really great. Or if you find yourself in New York City, you can see Danny and Olive's Cabaret at Bordello. It's Danny Moon with Olive Tuparte. Um, Wonderful, wonderful stuff. What's your, like, do you send people to social media, website? Where, Where do you tell people to go? Um, yeah, I, I have redporchrecords.com, which is my music studio site, and I'm not great at keeping up with it. I need a webmaster. Um, also, my Instagram, Danny Moon Music, or, you know, just that's pretty much it, I think. Um, it's Olive Two Party, T I E. Two Party. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so the cabaret show, that's cool in New York. Also, just, you know, um, if you want to know anything else, just message me, uh, Instagram or Facebook or any of that stuff. I'm not really great with Twitter. Do you do Twitter? I do. Yeah. Are, you, are you good at it? No, it's a cesspool. It's horrible. It's, I, is it's, it, it's better it's, than Instagram though, right? Is it not? Uh, I, mean, I don't know. I don't know. Nothing as good as TikTok right now. Uh, I can't. Yeah, I, I know. I, t- I said the same thing and, and it's, it's been, it's, it's crazy. Uh, and it's going to change. It's going to keep changing. And uh, it, it makes me feel young and old at the same time. It's a very strange thing to do, to do all the social media. But I, so dig, think, I still dig it. Do you think it would work if I, if I made like a bunch of costumes that were like for my big toe and I made like a TikTok toe page? Yeah. Yeah. Here's what I found out with TikTok. Whatever it is that you do well is not uh-huh. going to do well on TikTok. So oh, you got to do something shit. else <laughs> because these videos, like I, I, I go on TikTok and I do a, like a 60 second version of one of these stories and they do okay. really well. But if I go on there and show the most amazing magic trick you've ever seen in your life, no one sees it. It's so, really strange. So I just like try to dance. Is that what yeah, I just, do? Yeah. Just whatever, whatever, like the weirdest stuff or like, I don't know. I like tic-tac-toe. I think that's a great idea. If no one's already done it, you should jump on that. Tic-tac-toe. Charlie Thompson's already beat you to it. I guarantee it. He's already on it. (laughs) Dude, it's so good to see you. Uh, Thanks for taking some time on this Sunday. We'll we'll see you. You'll be on another episode sometime soon. Oh, thank you. I I really want to be. And also, I'll see you down the road, brother. I hope so, man. I hope to catch up with you. Also, wait, wait, wait. Real quick, real quick. Um, I think I'm going to be at the the OSU opener against Notre Dame. Any chance you're going to be there? I don't know. Maybe. I might have to make, I might, uh, that's going to be a night game. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Labor Day, Labor Day weekend. I'll be there, brother. I might look into that. Maybe we'll go play golf again. 
Uh, nope, not going to do that. But um, <laughs> just, uh, shut that down. I've been dejected lately by golf. Golf, yeah. golf has has beaten me, chewed me up, spit me out, okay. and well, we'll just I we'll just, just hang out and tell bit. stories. Then that's good enough for me. You know, what we'll do. We'll just we'll just look at random people and decide whether or not to go up and strike conversations with them. Okay, I'm going to need your help with that. I got you, bro. <laughs> you and me, we got this. <laughs> Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate it, man. Thank you, Michael. Bye. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks to Daniel Malone for being my guest. Here's a member of the Vladimir Lenin All-Union Pioneer Organization. Thank you for listening to The Internet Says It's True. Don't forget to join up on Patreon if you want to see the unedited video of the guest appearance or to hear bonus episodes. You can do that at patreon.com slash Michael Kent. Also, if you learned something that you didn't already know from the show, please visit iTunes and leave us a review with five stars and a few words. That's the rule. You gotta do it. That helps us a ton because that's how the algorithm works to get the podcast suggested to more people. And that way we can keep learning something new if the internet says it's true. The Internet Says It's True would like to thank the Patreon subscribers whose monthly contributions help to make this show possible. Sean Brown, Catherine Morgan, Bryce Swanson, Eugene Anderson, Matt McVeigh, Jim Martin, Joanne Martin, and the show's official Emperor Kick Track. The show is written and produced by me, Michael Kent. The theme song is by Finite Music Forge, and additional music this week was from Aaron Kenny and Huma Huma. All audio clips in this episode are used for education and commentary and used under fair use Title 17 USC Section 107. You can listen to past episodes by searching for The Internet Says It's True wherever you get your podcasts, and you can see bonus content at patreon.com slash Kent.